Hello, and welcome to IAOP's podcast series, PulseCast, where we explore topics big and small in a world of collaborative partnerships. Thank you for joining us, and now the host of PulseCast. For today's PulseCast, we bring to you a session from OWS 19. This session focuses on emerging tech and digitalization and how they're changing your relationship with outsourcing partners. Let's take a listen. Well, first of all, guys, thank you so much for being here. Awesome turnout, being sandwiched between lunch and drinks. So really appreciate your guys coming. We'll try to keep this engaged. Um, as Marco said, please ask questions throughout. We hope this is a di dialogue. Um, and this is very much from a hands-on experience. So um, plenty of stories and battle scars to share. Um, but our topic is one that uh, I think is very relevant, right? Just from look at all the sessions at this conference, digital, AI, blockchain, all the buzzwords are everywhere. And I feel like people focus on technology so much, and sometimes we forget that technology alone doesn't get things done. So we're, we're here to talk today about what does this mean from an operating model perspective? What does it mean from a, your relationship with your outsourcing partner and how you might manage them differently, how you will work with them differently? Um, so hope you guys enjoy it, and please feel free to chime in with your experiences. Uh, just to get started, um, I'd like to introduce my co-presenters. Uh, Dan, do you want to start? Hello? Uh, absolutely. Thank you, Boris. My name's Dan Schufert. I'm a Divisional Vice President of Strategic Sourcing at HCSC. I oversee three major categories, uh, software category, hardware, and IT services. Uh, in addition to those three categories, I have enterprise supplier management oversight uh, for the IT services category, and then I have uh, ITAM governance. So we don't do ITAM, but we govern uh, the ITAM. So, Dan? Hey, good afternoon, Dan Priest. I am a uh, partner with PwC based out of Los Angeles. I uh, lead the technology strategy uh, competency for PwC, and uh, I specialize in uh, digitally enabled uh, operating model transformation. So I do a lot of work around applying uh, next-gen uh, technologies to ways of working and uh, have a lot of years of experience in the outsourcing space. So looking forward to a good discussion with you today. Um, and I'll be your host today, Boris Avisgaus. I'm a, also partners PwC, really focused on helping clients think about their operating model, um, how to, the vendor management offices and overall kind of sourcing strategies. All right, so just jumping into this, you guys have heard the buzzwords, whether it's automation, business process service, cloud, analytics, AI, blockchain, the list goes on and on. Um, how do you get this done? What does this mean to the way we work? Um, and I think as we think about getting this into the mainstream, getting this into organizations, it comes down to a couple of things. It's how do we govern it all? How do we put it all together? How do we measure that it's actually working to what it needs to do? And then how do we create the right incentives within an organization with your outsourcing partner to make sure that everybody's working towards the same end goal? So what we really want to talk about today, and uh, we'll cover this um, in more detail, but there's three things I want to make sure I'll leave you with um, in 45 minutes. One is, no surprise to you, back office work is being automated. That will change your relationship with your outsourcing partner. A lot of things you pay into today will be automated and you'll get that somehow through contracts. 
What they also will do is leverage their scale um, and their technology prowess to create other capabilities and solutions to move further into areas where they haven't historically played in your marketing organizations, your sales organizations. That will be a big shift in terms of how you manage both internally and externally. Another point that I think is important to note is that will mean as they're not providing bodies, not CNE, it's not even managed service anymore. It's going to be solutions and capabilities. So how do you price that? How do you govern that? Will become very different. And then also, how do you bring in your sales organization, your marketing organization, into the vendor governance process to make sure they can share what they need, what capabilities are needed. Um, and I think finally, I, you know, this room is, there's a lot of procurement professionals here, there's a lot of um, vendors here. I, I think for both of you on both sides of the table, it'll be very relevant because you're sitting at this junction where you can move forward your, the digital transformation of your organization. Hey, can we ask a question then? Right. How many in here are customers? Show of hands. Interesting. All right. So it looks like we're about 40% customers, 60% supplier. Okay. All right. Just curious. <laughs> um, but so I think with that, um, I guess those are the three things we'll focus on today. Anything else you guys would like to hear about and want to make sure we hit as we go through it? Or any burning questions? So let's just start with some data. Um, right, no good consulting slide without data. So uh, I think that chart number one here is really tells a story. The gross and outsourcing of the IT about BPO is really tapering off. The kind of gross we've seen in the 2000s and early you know, 2010s is just not there. Um, there are many reasons for that. It's more saturated. People become more sophisticated. You will see there's a spike right towards 2017, 2018. We believe a lot of the spike is being driven by digital services. Digital comes up to cloud, analytics. Um, we think this trend is gonna continue. We think the traditional outsourcing revenue will, in the back office specifically will start declining because of the trends and the technologies we've been talking about. How what? Yes. However, we think a company will unlock a tremendous amount of value, you know, over $15 trillion of value and in productivity that can be unlocked. And I think the outsourcing community is gonna also look to how does they make up and provide more value to the customers in new areas. So this is really all part of a journey and you guys might have seen different variations of the story, but you know, we started with standardization and kind of shared service organizations in the 90s. Late 90s, 2000, moved to outsource and get advantage of labor arbitrage. Guys, there's more seats up here. Please come on in. Um, now, people are building this integrated back office as they're rolling out an army of RPA bots. And so we have seen this journey where back office is more and more optimized, more and more streamlined, more reliable at a lower cost. And that journey is going to continue. And I think as we move into what we're calling a digital enabled back office, what you're going to see is there's going to be a lot of new capabilities in the back office that historically were in other parts of the organization. Um, Dan, maybe you can uh, comment a little bit on where your, your, your company is in this journey right now. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Boris. The, uh, I, I could probably talk for days on this slide, right, because there, there's many uh, lessons learned. Uh, and an evolution of strategy and an evolution of value. 
So HCSC, we began the uh, outsourcing journey. I like to use the term right sourcing, though, right? Because uh, that's really what we're doing. Uh, in 2015, uh, and as the company evolved, as the historical culture evolved to what we're calling the future state culture, that's what enabled us to do some of this. Uh, I think some of the highlights or some of the things that, that, that made us very successful is uh, our goal was to get value, right? Not a cost-based effort. And through that value, the company I work for, HCSC, we had to get the, the fair value. We believe the supplier had to get fair margin. And that created the win-win. With that, as we built strategic partners, we looked at uh, shifting from labor to automation, cognitive chatbots, whatever it happens to be, uh, anywhere in that cycle, what can we do with the existing suppliers? Organically, we're growing, demand's going up, so instead of bringing suppliers in and out, bodies in and out, how can we shift what they're doing to support this area? Okay. Guys, any, any questions or maybe any comments before we keep going? Please. Uh, did you make a uh, correlation with this graph and your trended graph through 18 in the first slide? You saw that little spike over the last year that you were relating to uh, the topic, but this one goes off to 25. Do you see that continuation? On I, I, I think so. I think so. And, and honestly, if you look here, what's driving, what has been driving up till now, that spike, is really around cloud. Uh, and I think what's going to continue driving up is more as a service models. So the type of digital and the technology and the tool will change. Um, yeah. So uh, this is our only technology slide. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to go through all of these. You guys are probably familiar with all these buzzwords. I, I think there's three things on this slide that are important. A, this is a list now. It will change in six months. It will change in a year. It's going to keep changing. New technology is going to keep coming out. That's a given. Um, these technologies, by definition, are much more powerful in combination than any one by themselves. And when we see companies really changing how they work, it's not about any one of these. These are whole transformational programs taking different elements of what they need to accomplish their strategic goals. And what I also want to highlight is that it's not just technology traditions of the world. These are really transformational, uh, especially if you think about something like business process of service, which is becoming more and more relevant with the advent of S4, NetSuite, Workday, as kind of core financial RP systems it is becoming very easy for outsourcers to really provide you per transaction cost across multiple clients using a similar, similar financial system, have better quality, lower cost, and all with the proper you know, data privacy thought about. Uh, Dan, maybe you can comment more about what you have seen with your clients and how these are being rolled out. Yeah, I, th I think to Boris's point, we saw, um, RPA industrialized the fastest. Um, there's been this focus on a volume of bots going into production. Um, I, I see that changing uh, quite a bit now, where uh, you're not necessarily getting uh, more bots into production. You're getting more adoption of the bots or reuse of bots. And to Boris's point, it's, it's not about bots, really, right? It's, it's about this shift towards a product concept where you've got you know, the bots pulling and loading data so that a, an algorithm can interrogate it 
and that a user through NLP could interface with the, the results, right? And it's that combination, that, that uh, working as a product, that's really unlocking uh, quite a bit of value. I think uh, the, the clients that I've uh, been working with also, uh, they wanna make that pivot towards products, one, and two, they're looking for the outsourcing providers to uh, not just build a bunch of bots that go into production, but things like on the higher end of the scale, how do we start introducing you know, things like blockchain into the capability system where it's been talked a lot about, but the, the value, uh, it's, it's been more in a pilot uh, setting rather than you know, full production, full scale um, use cases. And so uh, you know, lots of you know, really rapid uh, advancement in these capabilities. But I, I think the key uh, point is it's the combination of these things. And then the last thing I'll say is, to Boris's point about you know keeping technology in perspective, I'm a, I consider myself a technologist. Um, that's what I do in in service of my clients. And I will tell you that none of these by themselves get the benefits. Right? It's it's not until you get into changes in skills and the way processes run all of the, the, the non-technology parts of the operating model that you start to unlock the benefits. So it's, you can't just put anything, you know, any one of these things into production, expect to get savings or smarter decisions in real-time processes. It's how do I upskill my people? How do I change the, the ways work get done to get the benefits from these technologies? Please. Yeah, that's a good question. Did everybody hear that? So he, he was asking, um, you know, as we mature, are the vendors maturing with us or do we have to interject uh, new suppliers in? Uh, and the answer is yes, right? <clears throat> we have some suppliers that are maturing, um, some that are not, right? And, and probably for the right reasons. Uh, just to ground, right? My aspect is ITO. Uh, not BPO, so I'm, I'm purely ITO focused. Uh, and then we're bringing in new suppliers, and that's part of the challenge um, for a traditional sourcing organization for a couple elements. One, uh, as we bring these new suppliers in, they tend to be boutiques, right? They're small firms with minimal assets that really don't pass our, pass our risk uh, evaluation of those companies. So we had to change the culture and the mindset of who we could buy from uh, another one, right, I'm healthcare, highly regulated, that from our board on down, we have to contract with a US-based entity. Well, a lot of the innovation, it comes out of India, you know, uh, Israel, Ukraine, Romania. Uh, so we have to help the suppliers mitigate that challenge if we want to get that value. You know, uh, adding on to that answer, as Dan Priest was talking about, um, we looked at an operating model. We didn't go out and, and say, hey, we're gonna outsource uh, application development. We're gonna move to an agile model. We actually looked at what is the goals, uh, what's the mission, what's the objective of the company at the board level, uh, down through the CEO, down through the CIO, and then looked at how do we realize the benefit? How do we deliver on what our mission is and then outsourcing or right sourcing became a lever. So. One more element now that I'm thinking about it. <clears throat> also, on all these technologies, they're disruptive. So they're changing daily, 
sometimes hourly. So it also poses the challenge of how fast we buy and for how long. Um, so we try to uh, buy no longer than a year out or one year contract, you know, maybe two or three years of renewal potential. But traditionally, where you'd buy three or five years, just doesn't work anymore. That the question also is actually a great lead in into our next slide. And so what we're definitely seeing, and at least hopefully is the left hand side, of the page should not be any surprise, right? Um, a lot of companies have used outsources very successfully on transactional processes. Um, what we see is, at least what I have seen across multiple clients, is that if you're in the midst of a contract, that innovation is harder to bring in, because so you're kind of in a set structure, and the incentives are often just not there. However, as it comes to renewal, companies are able to capture significant productivity and significant improvements because at those natural renewal points. And that goes back to Dan's point, as the technology changes more and more and what's becoming standard is changing faster and faster, having more frequent renewal points sometimes actually helps create the right incentives. You have to balance it with the overhead of, yes? Of course, uh, with digital technologies accelerating adoption, you know, um, the service providers are challenged to bring innovation and, uh, you know, adapt that technology to the environment. Have you guys done any work on the incentive structure to allow for service providers to cannibalize their business, improve their, their margins, and deliver better innovation to you, uh, leveraging digital technology? Yeah. Yes. The, uh, <laughs> and, you know, each supplier and I would say the tier, right, a tier one supplier, it's harder to make those kind of changes, though they're open to it. Who we interfaced with the supplier helps us drive that outcome. So um, we focus on the C level in the supplier. So, and I'm just illustrative examples, whether it's a Cognizant, Infosys, whoever it happens to be. Right? We have strong relationships at the COO, CFO, CIO, some of the board members, not trying to unfairly leverage, but trying to influence right, the value proposition of what they, they bring to us. And actually, they love it. Right? They're not used to customers interfacing that way. So <clears throat> uh, on the, the innovation front, uh, not, it's relevant innovation right, that they need to bring to us, and not only the potential or the ideation, of the innovation, but how does it fit into where we're going? We're very transparent with the supplier. How long do we think it's going to last? What's the investment, and what value do we realize out of it? So it, it drives a lot of conversation. So just a couple of things. Uh, in the past, it was always you'd expect something like 10% year-over-year efficiencies that you get from a new deal. Um, now it's it's much more um, structural, right? You're looking at the different parts of the uh, relationship with the service provider and saying, um, what what can go from 90% manual to 90% touchless, right? And it, I mean, it blows out of the water the the old metrics, right? And and it's not just uh, cost savings either, right? It's how can you drive uh, real-time uh, advanced analytics into decision-making so that I can see uh, you know, root causes and accelerate resolution times and uh, you know, b bring value to the client that way? And then the other thing I'd say is 
the, you know, this trend right here, um, it's being asked for by clients. And uh, I think the, the most successful uh, suppliers, the most uh, you know, successful uh, providers are the ones who are very aggressively disrupting their own revenue streams, saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to shift from the traditional model to more of a product-centric model. That's easier said than done, right? Because there's a bunch of cultural barriers that people have to work through, teams have to work through to move away from the, the, the labor-intensive model and uh, you know, growing the big pyramids. Uh, so it, it, it is, to Dan's point, incredibly disruptive. But the ones who are doing it to themselves are the ones who are winning most in the market. When I talk to sourcing professionals, there's you know, different names that come up about who's doing that really well, and not just paying lip service to it, but seriously taking that agenda on. Yeah, yeah I mean, go, go ahead. Yeah, um, you mentioned the, the move towards product, yeah. uh, which is, is interesting. What I was curious about, both in the context of HCFC and, and maybe other customers that you work with, um, are the products intended mainly for internal use, so only by HCFC people, or uh, very often external or mix? Is it more of the one? Or so, I mean, Dan, I'd be interested in your perspective, but um, when I see right now, it's, when I say product, it's not commercializing the product necessarily. It's creating a, a, a product concept for use within your enterprise, right? Th there are some companies I've seen um, that d do build something that's so great and has such a big impact on their business that they commercialize it. It's just, that's the rarity. Yeah, and I'm even not thinking when I think externally, not necessarily commercializing, I, what, what I, so it's that what, what I see happening personally, that um, as the stuff at the bottom there right, gets commoditized, companies are saying, let us invest. But somebody, an Accenture, an Infosys, a CCS, and, and many others, right? They have the amount of scale and investment to go develop an industry-specific solution that can take to multiple clients, which is oftentimes, unless you're working for like a Fortune 25, a Fortune 50, not many companies can match. So what I see them being better in touch with the business process and key business priorities and being able to offer up, I don't want to say customized, but industry-specific, company-specific solutions to solve specific problems, maybe using AI, maybe using something else, but something you couldn't necessarily build yourself. And I think that's really what the whole point we're trying to make here as yeah, people will put gain share in place today around transactional process. If you can overachieve your productivity goals, how do you share that? I think where it's going to go to is you're going to see outsourcers play more and more roles, decision support and even strategies using these products. That's the best term I can use. They may not be commercial products that sell as a software, but a product, an analytics product, whatnot, um, and have much more understanding in terms of where is the company trying to go? How can I deliver that value? And then pricing will change also. Now you're going from a teeny or a license to some sort of outcome-based, value-driven pricing for that service. I think, I think it, just one last thing on this slide. I think uh, teams who incentivize this, this transition and um, kind of get past the fear factor of uh, we're putting a bunch of people out of work and instead thinking about it as, I, I'm moving up the, the, the value stream, right? I'm gonna free my people up 
even service providers, right? I'm going to free my teams up from doing the low-level commodity stuff towards the higher value work. Uh, again, creating that incentive is, uh, you know, pretty effective, right? And it's reality, right? We, we've, I think at every major stage where technology enters the workplace, there's an immediate reaction uh, about what's it going to do to jobs, and you give it some time, and you get more jobs, uh, not, not fewer jobs, right? And I, I see that happening here, too. The, that's the, the point about the, the strategic level. You see more you know, bodies over here, not, not fewer, right? And that's more, frankly, fulfilling work for uh, you know, the, the, the professionals that we're trying to develop. So I think this is where the industry's going. Um, you know, three years, five years, seven years, we could argue about that, but I think that's definitely the direction. The question is, how do we get there? And maybe more specifically, what does it mean in terms of how we formalize our relationships today between companies and suppliers? I think there's kind of four big buckets, right? So the sourcing strategies have to change, right? What you source, who you source it to, who's the right partner, where should that work be done? That whole equation has to be kind of rethought given how the work is changing. Um, contracts get a lot more interesting as well, whether it's different types of SLAs and KPIs, or licensing conditions, data privacy rights, IP rights. These are all considerations that historically have just been handled at a high MSA level, never get into specifics. I think you have to get into a lot more specifics now. Um, from a governance perspective, right? If all of a sudden your outsourcing partner needs to go talk to a chief marketing officer, your CEO about their business strategy, well, how do you even have these conversations? How to make sure that your C-level um, executives are part of the governance structure with your vendor and make sure that those conversations are relevant and not a you know, review of the SLA dashboard from the last quarter. Um, and of course pricing which we already touched on I think the traditional whether it's teeny or managed service all of those will evolve further um, to some sort of value-based pricing. Um, Dan maybe you can talk a little about so I know you guys have been on the journey of the four R's as well. Absolutely and, and I think both this slide and the one before it kind of converge and for us, it was an interesting journey, and I think of a pyramid, right? Um, but flip that pyramid upside down, so the base is at the top. And this is a very valid sourcing strategy, but I, I think it's one that hasn't evolved. So typically, in large organizations, a small group of somebody will get together to start planning what we're going to buy. Um, usually, it's not the sourcing organization, right? You probably don't have legal in there, right? You definitely don't have supplier management. It's somebody trying to figure out what they want to go buy in isolation. Then you start going through a divine, uh, design phase, and in that design phase, a few more people come in, but it's usually at the execution, and that's the last step in that pyramid, where then sourcing gets involved, right? Transactional sourcing, saying, hey, this is what we want, and then sourcing goes out and beats up the supplier. Right? It's, it's not a healthy relationship. Then after that's all done, and you have a contract you don't know whether you can really govern or not, you bring in enterprise supplier management to say, hey, this is what we just did, now you gotta make it work. So uh, what we did is we, and, and this was very challenging, we changed the model, we flipped the pyramid upside down again, um, and even our CPO, very successful CPO, right? The CPO at USAA, uh, American Express, challenged the model because it was so different. It's not what the universities are teaching and it's not what the industry, you know, best practice is is we start with uh, the largest effort now is the planning, right? 
Uh, and in the planning, we bring everybody up front. All, uh, all the support, whether it's legal, it's HR, uh, the compliance organization, supplier management's in the kickoff meeting. And then we give each one of those organizations, uh, it's their opportunity to say whether they need to come back at what meeting or how much they need to contribute. Then the design phase is a little bit less after that, right? Because you invest all the time in the planning. And then on the execution, it, it, it is transactional at that point. You're just papering everything everybody figured out. The benefits we're seeing uh, is then supplier, uh, enterprise supplier managements along the journey with us. So they're giving us input on to SLAs or metrics or KPIs or whatever we happen to be doing. Uh, and as soon as the contract's executed, they can start governing it. So it, it, it's, it's become much more efficient and to you know, refining contract la uh, language and you know, the sourcing strategy and everything else that you see up here, we're also buying different, right? Um, we're doing over 200,000 story points a month in development, which is huge. So I have to buy that from multiple suppliers in multiple regions of the world, and I got to get them to work together. So in that governance model, um, you know, we have new metrics you know, based on velocity and based on quality. Those are really important in that area. But I could go on and on on the elements, but uh, I think you need to think differently. You need to, to, to think on how you drive the outcome you're trying to get to, and then stay aligned with the change in technology, the change in supplier uh, culture, and the way they're thinking about it. And then you work together with the supplier. It's a partnership. And if the supplier won't work with you, you find another one. And, and just to add to the point about doing it differently, if you're outsourcing the same scope you've always outsourced, you're probably doing something wrong, right? The, the first step is really take a look at um, what should be done by a, a bot or a machine, what could get eliminated from the scope, and then outsource the balance, and then have the discussion about, you know, with the partners, how can you move up that value continuum so that all you know we're not just giving you commodity type work, right? That that's the incentive discussion about getting that out of their mix too, but still having a a a place for them to move to, right? A, a, a different way to advise and support the the client. So I think that that's a key point Dan is making around doing it differently. It's it's a different scope, different engagement model, and different incentives for the uh, supplier partners. Actually, it's a good lead on to the next page. So how do you actually get your suppliers to do what you want them to do? And Dan, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about this. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this is kind of what uh, I, I'm going after is th this should be, you need this capability in-house, right? You need to know um, what can get automated. And you can work with your partners to figure this out as well. But, you know, more and more, uh, you know, our value proposition in an enterprise will be, how do I apply data science? Uh, how do I drive more intelligence into uh, real-time decision-making? You know, how can I free up time from low-value commodity stuff and focus it on high-value uh, differentiating activities, right? And so you need, you need this, and one option is, uh, you know, I, I automate in-house, right? Uh, another option is, and it's some combination of these, right? The other option is, um, you know, I'm going to go back to my service provider 
and you know have the conversation about uh, you know how can we re reset the teams around this uh, new agenda and unlock the value of digital, right? Um, th th this is you know perfectly reasonable approach. I will say one of the challenges I hear regularly from uh, my clients who are in this situation is they you know the, the sort of a comfort level sets in with their existing providers sometimes and they may not be as aggressive in these early discussions if it's a you know a one-on-one -on -one. and so you get to this third option which is um you know the the the, the rebid right and, and do a full rebid now i'll tell you uh if you know for the partners in the room the sourcing uh the outsourcing partners in the room i would say Demonstrate a lot of demonstrate a lot of uh, aggressive, uh, you know, thinking here, and don't be incremental, right? Because I think that the, the more you're able to uh, show that you're willing to assertively go after your own scope and really un uh, unlock the value of digital, the more your your uh, client is going to be comfortable giving that work to you, and uh, less often you're going to end up in this third option, which is, you know, you're rolling out a full RFP. And so, you know, lots of ways to go about this. It's usually some combination of this. I, you know, I do believe, though, um, you know, the, the roles are changing quite a bit. Um, the, the, the skills that, you know, the customers need to build um, around uh, automation, architecture, uh, you know, contracts, it's going to be really important in all of these scenarios. But, you, you want to make sure that you're you're not just opting for the same outsourcing scope. You want to make sure that you're not over reliant on your providers. Your head should be in the game. You should be figuring out a lot of this stuff with them. Uh, you should be figuring a lot of this stuff out on your own, right? So that uh, you can create some uh, opportunities to innovate um, and uh, get the full value of the deal. Um, and I think, just speaking of uh, service providers, um, as you guys evidence at this conference, there's not a service provider out there who's not thinking about how digital will affect how they work. It, it's it's norm, it's expected. However, culturally, it's a big shift, just like for your organization, trying to get more automated, move into an outsource model, is a huge cultural shift. I think for a lot of service providers, organizationally, for that message to go all the way down from leadership to operational, it's, it's taking time, and some companies doing better than others. Um, but having these conversations, and if you're not seeing that kind of operational change in ways of working, point that out through your governance process. So if I, if I could add to that thing too, you know, an observation, I just, just thought about this uh, as we're going through this, there's a behavior component, right? So with your incumbent suppliers, they're used to doing things a certain way. They're used to interfacing with you a certain way. Um, so as you're trying to change, as you're evolving the relationship, as you're trying to buy new things, they may not understand that. Um, so we've taken terminology out, uh, such as renewals, right? With our incumbents, we don't do renewals anymore, right? They're restructures. We want them to think that. Uh, and we make sure we clearly communicate that we're, we're going to the table. We're asking for something different. We're going to buy it differently. We're going to measure it differently. We're going to pay for it sometimes differently. Uh, but we want to make sure that the incumbent supplier understands that there is a change. And a lot of times they, they, they see our evolution, but they think, hey, we've been here a long time. Some suppliers in the organization I'm at, 20, 30 years, right? They provide a lot of value, uh, and they just don't get, 
right, what the change is. So the advice I give those suppliers on any of these opportunity levers is treat us like a new customer. Pretend like, right, you're coming in for the first time, right, pay attention, listen to us, and then you have an opportunity to maybe, right, uh, win some work here. So, you know, we talk, yeah, go ahead. All these changes are between outsourcing people, CTO, and procurement organization as a But on the internal business side, the people that they have to go through the change management, because now it takes a little longer, I don't know how much longer it is. How do they react to that? How do they come back to accomplish that and getting adjusted to that? Well, what's Celeste? I couldn't have planted a better question. Yeah, yeah. it's perfect. <laughs> the, so what's a Celeste ask is, you know, you align the CPO and essentially the supporting organization, but uh, you also need to align your internal customer or customers, right? How do you do that? Uh, the strategy that I'm talking about doesn't work in, unless you're all in alignment. Uh, and we spend a lot of time communicating to our internal customers, right? All mine are internal. Um, this is what we're doing, here's why we're doing it, here's what your role is, um, and uh, asking them, do they understand it? Yes or no isn't enough. When they, they say they understand it, then, then we start probing, right? Well, do you understand this means X or Y? And 80% of the time, first time through, they didn't understand it, right? They're using historical terms, historical terminology, uh, and quite often glazing over as we're having this conversation because they think they know what we're gonna say. So for me, you know, I use two terms, shock and awe and dazzle and delight. So I have to shock and awe my internal customers, which is a little risky, uh, but in the end, then I dazzle and delight. And uh, just for the vend from the vendor's perspective, hearing what you're saying, um, what can vendors do to help you with the shock and awe, dazzle and delight? What, 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 what do you see there in the system in the visuals, presentation, centers of excellence? You know, it, it varies by supplier. Uh, something I learned early in my career and I'm passionate about, right? The most important asset of any company are its people, right? And it's the, the, the people that, that form the brand and the culture. So in some suppliers, they have a different mission, right? They have a different outlook and it's really difficult to ask them for help. Actually, quite often those suppliers will lobby across the organization uh, with, with my internal stakeholders to tell them why my strategy is not going to work. Uh, and initially, uh, the stakeholders pay a lot of attention to that. But as you deliver and over-deliver and over-deliver, uh, they get it and they support you. Then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, we've got some great suppliers that, that, that said, hey, you know what? We're seeing similar insights from some of our other customers. How can we help you? And for me, it's strategic sourcing. I want strategic relationships with my suppliers so we can sit down at the table. We can have you know, a circle of trust and then we can whiteboard. We can talk about how we can help or co-invest in each other's organization. Sometimes it's co-invest in process. Rarely is it co-invest in money, right? But, but you know, maybe it's labor, insights, different things. But for me, for those suppliers, it's to be able to sit down at the right level have the conversation of what outcomes we're trying to drive and see if they buy into it. And, right, if they do, I'm more than happy to let them take their insights and what they've learned at HCSC and go sell it somewhere else, right? It's a win, win, win. So, I mean, I think just to highlight that the operating model component, just like it is a big change for your vendor in different ways of working within your organization, buying differently, 
really has to flow all the way across the operating model, um, getting people comfortable with it, getting people to think about it differently, and um, kind of think broader. Um, I, I think oftentimes it really starts with understanding what is the digital strategy or digital kind of vision your company's trying to drive, right? This, it, rarely it's about trying to just buy everything or all the technologies. It's really trying to say, no, what is gonna make a difference for my company? Do I understand that? And how do I get that embedded? And, and bring the type of products or services that will drive my organization's digital journey forward. Absolutely, I think the one of the factors um, is I'm not a sourcing guy uh, to begin with, right? That's why I was brought into the role I was brought into, right? I'm an IT, I'm a business guy, uh, and I've been very successful over the years at driving large transformations across the globe. So as I came in and I started retooling the sourcing organization, the CPO, who's my boss and I, we just didn't see eye to eye. He's like, that's not the way it works. And it's like, good, that I'm doing my job, right? Uh, a lot of the suppliers that I see in this room today, and I'm not gonna call you out, helped us through that journey. It was very positive because those suppliers could have lobbied um, with the CPO and the other stakeholders and say, hey, this is not how it works, right? This is not how the industry has been developed. But they didn't. They saw the upside. Uh, they helped me get there. Uh, and now HCSC uh, across the board, right? Not only in ITO, but BPO for, for other people driving in a similar fashion, that we're very successful on this. Um, and uh, I think we're harvesting a lot of value. It works, right? Transparency, honesty, uh, the ability to, to make quick decision, and then shortening without increasing risk, the sourcing cycle. If I need 200 resources in agile development, Right, in two weeks, the traditional 90 days right, to find those folks doesn't work in contracting. So, you know, we're, we're experimenting, we're innovating. So far, it's worked. A lot of that, too, just as one more comment, is around, um, you know, limits of liability and indemnifications, right? We look at them differently than we have historically because we have different risk or, you know, uh, different capabilities of recovering from different suppliers. So it's really just, just turning this upside down. Um, for us, it helped having good third-party advisory and a good law firm that supported us, so. I think there's a question in the back. Yeah, so Andy Walter talked yesterday about how PG recognized that providers have to have some incentive to innovate. Rick asked a question earlier about this, and obviously you should see and Dan have a very sophisticated view in this area, but I'm curious for Dan and Forrest, for your other clients, your other customers, how is that conversation going in terms of the maturation of the market? Because for a lot of providers, the fight, the tug of war over IP and data results in the customer, in essence, owning and controlling, when that really limits the development that gets done and the innovation that gets done at the provider the ability of the provider to do, in essence, one-to-many, take machine learning and things like that, a model, it gets better when more data is fed into it. But a lot of customers start out from the perspective of, I own everything, you can do nothing with my data, and anything you develop, I'm gonna own. So yeah. I'm curious how, that, no. how that's maturing. No, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, uh, we see all the negative press about Facebook, right? But people still continue to use it, why? because they get a value out of it. I think this is no different. 
if a provider can offer a client values that they get from sharing that data, they find ways to be creative and protect their commercial interest, but give enough data to get that value back. Vice versa, if it's a one-way street, and the, the, it, because like, no, it's my model, it's my model, it breaks down very quickly, right? So, so it really has to focus on what is a shared value for both sides and how do you do it in a way that still protects, protects you as a company. But I, I see both uh, models, Neil, that um, in the past it was, um, it's proprietary and what you build is mine. I also now see, uh, to your point, uh, clients asking for a catalog that the partners can bring of you know reusable bots or reusable algos so that they don't have to start from scratch, but they can get the benefit of all the work they've done with other clients. To your point about th there's some benefits that can accrue to the, the community. Um, but um, yeah, and I think that the latter model, frankly, um, is going to take off more. But you know, one of the things that we often do around strategy is figuring out you know, what's lights on, what's competitive table stakes, and then what's truly differentiating. If it's truly differentiating, build it in-house, make it proprietary. If it's just lights on stuff, get it from the community, buy off of a catalog, you know, fastest time to value is what matters. Yeah. Because of this disruption we're talking about, have you guys done a projection of like the outsourcing marketplace, the actual dollars? Because there's going to be winners and losers, and there's going to be incentives for suppliers to you know, keep business or actually implement this stuff but lose money or use actual yeah, revenue. I, so, I mean, I think, uh, I would, would try to touch on this earlier, I think the market is going to continue to grow the services that they're rolling out will be different. It'll be less people-based services and more product-based, effectively. I don't know if that, if that answers the question. I was thinking of an absolute dollar amount. I didn't know. I mean, you say the market's going to grow, you believe totally in revenue. Yeah. You know, and just, just one more comment, that, that listening to the questions and the conversation here, uh, it's grounding, right? I, I suggest every view, everybody think about it, is expect the unexpected, right? Uh, I, I know Pivotal Cloud Foundry was our first cloud-based contract we did. Uh, it was an open source GPL right, license, and we thought, oh, this is gonna be easy. But our legal team disappeared for a long time, came back and redlined 600 pages of a GPL, and you just can't do that, right? <laughs> Uh, and so that was my fault. I didn't brief and educate the legal team on how the industry's evolving and what it means. And after we did, right, they, they were more than happy to come in line. But there's so many examples that I have like that where I just didn't communicate effectively. I assume some people knew this stuff. So we, we spent a lot of time and effort on just uh, educating both our stakeholders, testing and educating suppliers. Guys, thank you so much for coming. Uh, we're happy to stick around.